ladies and gentlemen, and I want to welcome you back to the second episode of The Crucible. The Crucible is a new podcast that uh, I've basically developed to test various claims, ideologies, theologies, philosophies, and, and everything that the culture is talking about right now when we put it in the heat of Scripture. That just as a crucible breaks down and melts these metals to purify them of impurities, so too we need to place all claims of truth into the crucible of Scripture. And applying the pressure and heat of Scripture will work the impurities, the untruths, out of those claims and can reform and remold them to conform to the truth of Scripture. Well, I'm so glad you joined me on today's journey because this episode's going to be a little bit of a, a, a of rambling, I should say, a little bit of a theological rabbit trail because uh, this episode comes from something I saw on Twitter. Now, hold on. I know what you're thinking. You're saying, Pastor Justin, get off Twitter. It's toxic and a waste of time, and I would agree with you. This Sunday, I should repent of my Twitter usage. But that aside, since I've already logged on, I saw something that caught my eye. And this tweet, uh, or rather this thread that I saw, came from a Dr. Taylor Marshall, who is a traditional Roman Catholic. He is a conservative, uh, what in shorthand we call a trad Roman Catholic, someone who's very theologically and politically conservative. And I saw a thread where basically he was mocking Protestantism. He was uh, misrepresenting it, strawmanning it. And unfortunately, Dr. Taylor Marshall is getting a little too popular for himself because even Glenn Beck had him on his radio program recently to talk about Pope Francis. Now, I'm not here to uh, overly criticize Dr. Marshall, but I do want to base this episode uh, to basically respond to those who question Protestantism, to respond to those who caricature, straw man, mock, condescendingly view Protestantism as an inferior form of Christianity. And this is why this episode I have titled is, I love Protestantism, and so should you. And here are three reasons why. <laughs> I love Protestantism, and so should you. And here are three reasons why. In fact, before I get to those three reasons, I want to cover two misconceptions about Protestantism. In fact, before I even get to that, let me first define what I mean by Protestantism. If you don't know, Protestantism is, is essentially the theological movement that came from the Reformation 500 years ago in the 16th century. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, surely you've heard of these names. This launched what we call the Reformation. Protestantism is simply a term to coin those who protested various things happening in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, if we want to get really nerdy, the term Protestant comes from the Diet of Spires, where a bunch of European nobility was deciding which religion, Lutheranism or Catholicism, to enforce on the people. And ultimately, they decided to enforce Catholicism, but those nobility who protested that decision and wanted religious liberty and freedom, at least for the Lutherans, they were coined Protestants. So that term kind of caught on. And again, I think it's been embraced by those with a reform heritage because they wish to protest things that they see as being unbiblical. 
So Protestantism uh, basically is all those religious groups from the Reformation who hold to the five solas of the Reformation. So sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, and sola dea gloria. Basically that scripture alone is our highest authority and only infallible authority. We are justified by faith alone, through grace alone, because of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Now, I just rushed through those real quick. I will spend another episode to define what all those terms mean. But again, when I say Protestant, I mean those who hold to the five solas. Now, those who don't hold to the five solas would be, by definition, not Protestant. So that would be Roman Catholics. That would be the Eastern Orthodox. That would be the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and several other groups. Protestant is not simply a non-Catholic group. (laughs) Oftentimes, that's the assumption, but that's not the case. To keep things simple, a a Protestant would be your Baptist, your Methodist, your Anglican, your Lutheran, your non-denominational Christian, and several others, but a Mormon is not a Protestant. Mormons are non-Trinitarians. They do not hold to the five souls of the Reformation. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, same thing. They are non-Trinitarians. They would not be Protestant. Uh, Roman Catholics are Trinitarians, just like Eastern Orthodox and Protestants, but they're not Protestant because they reject the five souls of the Reformation. And we could uncover more differences between the groups, but again, this episode, I want to be a broad overview of why I love Protestantism. But let me get into the two misconceptions I want to address specifically before I move forward. The first misconception of Protestantism is that it was a revolution, not a reformation. In fact, Dr. Uh, Taylor Marshall uh, basically holds this viewpoint where uh, we pretend that Reformation ideas and doctrine were simply non-existent for 1,500 years until Martin Luther came on the scene. And that then we look at Christianity and say, well, the apostles had it, Christ had it, but then for 1,500 years, the church was uh, simply apostate. The gospel was lost. There was no true church until Martin Luther came on the scene and magically rediscovered Christianity. Oftentimes, Protestantism is caricatured this way, but no Reformation tradition views themselves that way. Let me uh, exclaim this even more. No true Protestant believes the church was lost for 1,500 years. No true Protestant believes that their doctrine is a theological novum or a new teaching that was unknown for 1,500 years. It is only those outside Protestantism that need to caricature and straw man us in order for their position to seem stronger than it actually is. When you read the Reformers for themselves, when you read Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others, you'll find that they felt the church was in dire need of reform, but they did not want a revolution. A revolution is when you start something new that never existed before. A reformation is when you take something that exists and make the necessary changes to make it better and purer than it currently is. Uh, In fact, one illustration that uh, many of the Reformers used and others in Protestant traditions would be like, uh, imagine if you had a stream coming down a mountain, uh, and we're about 
you know, a few miles down from the mountain. So the stream has been flowing for a while. Now we look at this stream and this stream is muddy. The stream is polluted. This stream has, has, has things in it that were like, this probably didn't originate at the start of this stream. And we want to clean the stream up. So we go back up to the start of the stream, the mouth of it, the most pure part. And we look at it and say, you know what? The mouth of the stream doesn't have the pollutants. It doesn't have all the mud, all these rocks, all this, again, the, this pollutants that we see in the water. So we design a filter to filter out the, the streams so it reflects more of what it looked like at the very beginning. This is what Reformation is, where we take the uh, uh, purity of Scripture, the start of Christianity, Christianity's most pure clear form. And we use that as a filter to apply to the church to filter out all the pollutants that have gathered in the stream of Christianity since its inception. I mean, the church has been around for 2000 years. A lot can get into the stream of Christianity that shouldn't be there. So again, this reformation is not starting a new church. It's not saying the church has been apostate. It's not saying that the gospel was lost for 1500 years. It's saying the church existed, but it was in a dirtier, less uh, clear and less pure form. So we take the filter of scripture, apply it to the church, and we filter out anything that is anti-scriptural. Anything that is not found in the biblical account we recognize to be an accretion that muddies the waters of scripture. And therefore, the Reformation simply represents the attempt of Christians to go back to the original form of Christianity, to go back to where Christianity began and say, let's reform and conform our religion to the apostles, to the prophets, and to Christ. And even the early church fathers who came right after the apostles themselves. So first misconception, no, Protestantism does not say the gospel is lost for 1,500 years. We don't treat Martin Luther like Joseph Smith. And no, no reformer, no Protestant today views themselves as starting a church that's only 500 years old. We recognize the church has been around for 2,000 years. We did not start a revolution. It's a reformation. Understand the difference. Because when non-Protestants don't, it frankly uh, does not lead to healthy conversation. Number two, the second misconception I want to clear up is that Protestantism leads to chaos. That when you don't have an infallible figure like a prophet, uh, like tradition, or like a pope, then basically you can believe whatever you want. And again, this is is so far from the truth. Certainly within Protestantism, you have freedom of conscience where there can be a diversity of beliefs. But again, when you look at a theologically conservative Methodist, Anglican, Lutheran, Baptist, non-denominational person, and so many others, you'll recognize that if they're informed, they agree on the five souls of the Reformation. They agree on who God is. We're all Trinitarian. We agree on what the gospel is, justification by faith alone, uh, or by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone. So therefore, we agree on God and the gospel, and it's only these secondary issues that, don't get me wrong, they are important, but we allow freedom of conscience on, where therefore we must divide into different denominations without excommunicating each other from the church of Christ. Um, furthermore, in non-Protestant traditions, you got plenty of uh, diversity and confusion as well. If you go to the Roman Catholic communion, there is still lots of disagreements over, um, and now these are some things you may need to Google, but 
Does a Catholic hold to a partum partum view of Scripture or a material sufficiency view of Scripture? In other words, does Scripture have all of God's revelation we need, or is part of it in Scripture and part of it in oral tradition? Uh, the Pope has not decided uh, yet on that one. Um, further, you could look at there's liberal Roman Catholics, there's conservative Roman Catholics, there's Roman Catholics called Seat of Acontis who believes the Pope isn't the true Pope right now and the Seat of Peter is empty. Um, pope Francis himself represents a, a quite uh, different type of Roman Catholic where he's shown sympathies to the LGBT community, he has condemned the death penalty, and he seems just shaky on many things that Catholics have took for granted. When your own Pope is a someone who is considered liberal, and breaking with Catholic tradition, you can hardly criticize Protestants and say they're confused. The reality is, within all of Christianity, there is going to be diversity, and we recognize that we won't have a perfect doctrine until the other side of eternity. But thankfully, contrary to Dr. Taylor Marshall and others, there is much more unity among conservative Protestants than what others assume. Again, we agree on God and the gospel and so much more. It is on what Protestants consider secondary, although important issues, things like baptism, the Lord's Supper, end times, church government, in which we must follow our spirit-led conscience in reading the text. And because we don't want a pope or a prophet to force, forcibly decide for us, we have to allow some diversity. Unity in the midst of diversity is not an, a bad thing. And we recognize that King Jesus will one day clear up all the less than clear things in Scripture. Finally, let me move into three positive reasons why I love Protestantism, and hopefully these resonate with you. Number one, Protestants get authority right. Protestants get authority right, contrary to uh, Eastern Orthodox, who believe Scripture is infallible, but so is tradition, contrary to Roman Catholics, who believe Scripture is infallible, uh, the Pope in certain qualified statements is infallible, and tradition is infallible, contrary to Mormons, who believe Scripture, the Book of Mormon, and the Prophet is infallible, and contrary to Jehovah's Witnesses, who, again, have a high view of Scripture, but they also have the Watchtower Society that tells them how to interpret things, quote-unquote, infallibly. Protestants all believe that Scripture is our sole infallible rule of faith and practice, sola scriptura. That there are other important rules for faith, there are other important authorities, but they all must be under Scripture. Scripture alone cannot err, and that's because it is God-inspired. So as the way I put it, other authorities are invaluable, but only Scripture is infallible. And Protestants get this right because this is the view that Jesus and the apostles held. If you listen to my first episode last week, you will be well aware of the number of Scriptures that describe scripture itself being our ultimate infallible authority. Jesus could read scripture and say, God is speaking to you. Therefore, if we want to say anything is equal to scripture, you have to say God is speaking through that as well. And there is no warrant for that. Jesus used scripture to rebuke Satan, to rebuke religious authorities, to correct tradition, and so much more. Again, showing that Jesus used the highest standard, which is scripture, to correct all other standards beneath it. The Bereans used scripture to test the Apostle Paul's teaching, and Luke, writing in Acts, says that those Jews were more noble than other Jews because they did that. 
Scripture is described as God-breathed. Again, nothing can be higher than that which is God-breathed. So throughout Scripture, we see that the Bible describes itself as God-breathed, God-speaking, and that it's used to correct religious leaders, Satan, our own feelings, and tradition. Therefore, we recognize Jesus and the apostles held to what we now call sola scriptura, and I feel so confident and comfortable having the same authority structure that our Lord did and that his apostles did. Again, showing that if non-Protestants who hold to uh, or who reject sola scriptura when they elevate tradition or an individual to be equal to scripture, they're the ones who have not followed the most ancient form of Christianity, the most pure form of Christianity, which is the prophets, apostles, and Jesus himself. They hold to something unbiblical. They hold to something that is novel and new that was unknown in the text of scripture, not us Protestants. Number two, we get the gospel right. We get the gospel right. In Protestant circles, we recognize that the gospel or the good news of uh, God saving a people for himself is that Christ saves us from our sins. Therefore, we articulate something called justification by faith alone. All this means is that when we trust in Christ, we possess Christ. And because we possess Christ by faith, we have everything we need for salvation because it's all found in Christ. That when we possess uh, Christ by faith, we are united to Christ and become one with Christ. By becoming one with Christ, his death becomes ours and his life becomes ours. Therefore, when he died on the cross, he paid for our sins. And when he lived a perfect sinless life, we have his righteousness. This is why the New Testament describes this uh, great exchange in this way. Uh, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we become the very righteousness of God. Again, let me read that for you. He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we can become the righteousness of God in him. This comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that Jesus never knew sin, but because he united himself to sinners like us, he died as if he was a sinner to propitiate the very wrath of God, because we were not righteous, but we're connected to Christ. We have his righteous perfection. This is why, for example, the thief on the cross could be saved. He had nothing to offer God, but he put his faith in Christ. And because he possessed Christ, he had everything he needed for salvation. I could go much more in depth on the gospel, but all non-Protestant traditions reject this. They say, yes, Christ is important. Yes, faith is important. Yes, grace is important. But all of those must be supplemented by something else. Yes, trust in Christ, but also you need baptism. You need good works. If you fall into sin, you might lose your salvation. To regain it, you must confess to a priest and receive absolution. If you don't, you might end up in purgatory. There are so many examples I could give where in non-Protestant traditions, they give lip service to Christ, they give lip service to grace, they give lip service to faith, but then it involves your work, your cooperation, your effort, uh, maybe even your own righteousness or the righteousness of the saints to supplement the work of Christ, to supplement grace, to supplement your faith in order to finally achieve salvation. In fact, in the Council of Trent, the great uh, rejection of the Reformation in Roman Catholic tradition um, specifically says you can never be sure you're actually saved. Why? Because you'll never know if you've done enough. You'll never know if you've basically fulfilled all the requirements in the Roman Catholic system to be saved. Meanwhile, in Scripture, we 
we see that you can't know if you're saved, that you can have peace with God, that you can have assurance, because if you trust in Christ, you know you have Christ, and if you have Christ, you have everything you need and more for salvation. I could go more in depth on that, but I'm going to continue for number three, why you should love being a Protestant. Protestants do history better. Protestants do history better. Some might be scratching their heads and say, wait a second, aren't Protestants the ones that reject things in church history? Uh, Aren't Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox the ones who really champion church history? And really, unfortunately, maybe in the 21st century, Protestants have earned uh, that unfortunate description because we need to be better at history. But there were some absolutely brilliant church historians in the Protestant tradition. Philip Schaff is a great example. Nick Needham is another great example. J.N.D. Kelly, another great example. All the reformers, Calvin uh, and Luther, were steeped in church history. Read Francis Turretin and uh, Martin Chemnitz, and they were steeped in church history. If you don't know these names, Google. Google them. Start learning your Reformation heritage. Now, Protestants do church history better because Protestants don't have to make history something it's not. In any theological tradition that elevates tradition to the level of infallibility, whatever version of tradition that must be, you can no longer do history objectively. You must coerce, force, and manipulate the church fathers to become what you want them to become. So Roman Catholics must make the church fathers Roman Catholic. Eastern Orthodox must make the church fathers Eastern Orthodox. Well, guess what? I don't have to make the church fathers Protestant. Because if we're being intellectually honest, they were not Roman Catholic. They were not Eastern Orthodox. The church fathers were not Protestant. The church fathers were the church fathers. They were the early church. They don't have to look, sound, or smell exactly like us. It's only in traditions that want to force beliefs that are not found in Scripture. It's only in those traditions where they have to make the church fathers be something they're not because they recognize they can't rely on Scripture alone to convey their beliefs. So they have to make up another source in order to back that up. So again, Protestants do church history better because we can look at history and say, it's okay if I agree with the church father in these areas, and it's okay if I disagree. In fact, look at the church today. Uh, There are churches and Christians that have a lot more biblical beliefs than other Christians, right? Um, It blows my mind when we want to look at church history and pretend it's infallible in any way, shape, or form, because scripture in no way gives, in our experience, gives no way gives credence to that idea. Think of the Old Testament. Israel was not perfect, and they sure weren't infallible. There were times when Israel was great. Think of King David. But there was times when Israel was at a low point. Think of the ministry of Elijah and how he felt he was the only true believer in all of Israel. Israel was not infallible. The New Testament church certainly wasn't either. Half the New Testament essentially is about correcting churches who have already gone astray. Think of the Galatians and how they were so quick to abandon the gospel. Think of how troubled the Corinthian church was. How about the churches written to in Revelation? All throughout the New Testament, the apostles are clear there needs to be reformation. And let me ask you this. If in the New Testament times, while the apostles were still alive, the church kept on getting things wrong, how much more so when the apostolic age ended? We need reformation today, not just not, now, I'm not saying that the church is always wrong, but I'm saying we need to recognize there's only one infallible source of doctrine, and it's not you, it's not me, it's not the Bishop of Rome, it's not the prophet in Salt Lake City, Utah. It's only in Scripture. 
just how the apostles consistently had to correct and reform churches around them to the true standard of the Bible, we need to use apostolic teaching, which is only found in Scripture today, to reform ourselves and our local churches back to the pure standard of Christianity, again, which is found in our highest, ultimate, only infallible standard, which is Scripture itself. So, saints, let me conclude with this. There's lots of caricatures out there, and I know many listening to this today would probably nitpick what I said, and they would probably say, Pastor Justin, you need to think about this angle and that angle, and trust me, uh, you're probably not wrong. Uh, This was designed to be a very general bird's-eye view of what I consider to be the strengths of Protestantism. This deserves more conversation, but hopefully this encouraged you to dive deeper in your own theological research. If you're a non-Protestant, I hope this helps you and encourages you to not caricature a tradition that has anywhere between 800 million and a billion adherents around the world today. If you're a Protestant, hopefully that uh, you don't fall into those caricatures. Hopefully you love church history. Hopefully you love scripture. And hopefully you don't caricature non-Protestant traditions either. But we need to talk about these issues because eternity is on the line. I'm convinced that Protestantism is biblical Christianity. Now within that, there's various degrees and denominations of Protestantism. I understand that this episode was not designed to get into the different denominations, because certainly I believe there are some that are more biblical than others. We'll get into that sometime, but I firmly believe the five solas of the Reformation are simply an articulation of biblical Christianity. Now, I'm convinced that Protestants uh, have their authority structure correct. I believe Protestants have the gospel right. I believe Protestants do church history better. And because of that, I am a very content, happy Protestant and believe that I have more in common with the apostles in ancient Christianity than pretty much all of the non-Protestant traditions out there today. There's actually so much more I want to share with you. There's so many different angles and directions I actually want to go. But just to kind of continue to cultivate this hunger in you to dive deep into theology, I want to close uh, with this statement. I want to close with a quote here from Francis Turretin. Turretin was a Reformed theologian in the 17th century, and he uh, was was deep into theology, into polemics, into systematic theology. And here's a quote from a systematic theology work he did called The Institutes of Electic Theology. Um, Again, this work is 300 plus years old, and he addresses a concern that um, maybe Protestants feel today, that he addresses a concern or a caricature that others like Dr. Taylor Marshall thrust on Protestants. And I want you to listen to this quote as I close today. So again, this is from Francis Turch, and listen closely. He says this, if our opponents wish us to answer the proposed question, where was your church before Luther? They're also bound to answer us. Where was their church in the time of Christ and the apostles, in which nothing concerning transubstantiation, the sacrifice of the mass, the invocation of saints, the worship of images, purgatory, indulgences, the Pope and his authority, and other errors, theoretical and practical, prevailed as yet among believers? Further on, where was the papacy in the first six centuries of purer or at least less impure Christianity? End quote. Did you catch what Turrington did there? That if someone ever approaches you and says, where was your church a thousand years ago? Where was your church before Luther? Where was your church in whatever century of, of the church they quote? And a good question back is, where was your church in the New Testament? Where was your doctrine in the time of Christ? 
because I can point you to where justification by faith alone is. I can point you to where my doctrine of God is, to where my gospel is, to where my church polity is, to where my doctrine of the sacraments or ordinances is, because I can find them in the New Testament and I can exegete them for you pretty easily. In fact, I would say my doctrine is 2,000 plus years old. If you can't find your doctrine in the New Testament, your doctrine is maybe novel. Your doctrine is new. Your doctrine is something the apostles, the prophets, and Christ did not know about. And if you can't exegete and demonstrate your doctrine from the text of the New Testament, it is very likely that you are the one in error, not us. The Reformation was not just needed 500 years ago. It's needed even today, and it's needed for every human heart that we approach the scriptures and say, Jesus, you are the one speaking to us in the text. I submit to you, reform, refine me according to your truth. God bless you guys. We'll pick up on this more next week right here on The Crucible.